Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this is the 21st sermon in our sermon series of Luke's Gospel, and this evening we will examine Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39 in your pew Bible. It is the incident where Jesus begins to teach. We transition now from from the way in which each, each part, a point along the way, Jesus declares who he is as the last Adam, the Son of God into his teaching ministry, which illustrate and highlights these great truths of the scriptures. Now, last time we examined the nature of Levi's conversion and his call, and we saw how Levi, a tax agent for the Roman government, was a man with a history of covetousness. He was a grasping, grinding man who has built his wealth off the backs of his countrymen. He was a necessary evil to the wealthy, an abomination to the religious, and the worst kind of crook to the poor. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ sought him out and declared in forgiveness and in calling that our Heavenly Father's grace and mercy was poured out on Levi. We saw how Levi gained a new name of Matthew, God's gift who had received God's gift of grace in the Lord Jesus. This destabilizing wonder of God's grace and mercy that is no respecter of persons, that he searches out to save the least likely among us, which gives us as believers hope, hope for ourselves, that no matter how morally damaged we may be, The blood of Jesus atones for us. It gives us hope that the least, least likely of those whom we love, who hate the name of Jesus, who may treat you and me with searing contempt, may still come to conversion and eternal life. And this amazing way in which God's grace works in this example of Levi, we can also see how God's grace gives us assurance. Because it is not of ourselves, rather our Heavenly Father has sought you out, pulled you from the pit of his wrath to become his beloved child. God's grace is truly amazing. You see, to think of grace is not to think of a theological equivalent of a math problem, but it's to be personally confronted with God. And we saw how this happens to Levi, that he's amazed of God's grace, and it transforms him utterly. It transforms him into a concern for his friends, those other tax collectors, those like him that remain without God, without hope, So he gives a banquet, and he has the Lord Jesus as the guest of honor. And as the lamps burn low and Jesus is in conversation with these other men, I believe that many came to be converted. Levi will not go to stand in eternity by himself. 
But we also saw in the reaction to what Jesus had done that there were those who wanted to limit God's grace and mercy, the Pharisees, the scribes that were part of their party, who would have nurtured God's word in their hearts. Instead, they decided that it was forbidden for God's grace to be extended to people such as these. They had forgotten what Deuteronomy told them, that they are not to think that as a people, Israel had some righteousness of their own, and therefore God chose them. Instead, Deuteronomy tells us it's his grace alone that brought them out of slavery. He also tells them that he will circumcise their hearts so that they will love the Lord, their God, with all their heart and with all their soul. They had forgot the depth of their need, and in forgetting their need, they wanted to limit God's grace to others. This is a default position of every man, woman, and child. When we forget our need of grace, we limit God's grace in others. We forget the presence of original sin within us that still corrupts. Even after we're born again, that infection still remains. And so we can veer off the straight and narrow way of the gospel. That's why Jesus says that he has not come to be for the well, but for those who are sick. He has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now we must think about this, mustn't we? Because in the end, the doctrine of grace in the scriptures is not some abstract idea. Yes, it is uh, an understanding of God's mercy, but it's rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, God's response to your sin and mine is not simply to forget it or act as if it's never happened. No, indeed, his response is Christ. God's favor to me is Christ. God's love to me is Christ. And I am called then to embrace him as my savior. So now that Luke has laid out this spiritual psychology, as it were, he continues in the same theme. He does it in a very unique Old Testament way that may be easily missed. It begins quite simply in a question of fasting and repentance. And his answer to this question places himself at the center of God's grace. He is the source of rescue and restoration. Luke wants to underline this again and again and again. And we can see why, can't we? He, we must think back once more that the reason why he's writing his gospel is for his friend Theophilus, who had a knowledge of the, of the Lord Jesus, but not a certainty of the Lord Jesus. So Luke wants to bring to the fore all these various points in Jesus' own ministry where he repeats again and again that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Luke now sets his scene. An opportune time, encouraged by the Pharisees and the scribes, some of John the Baptist's disciples approach Jesus to ask a question 
of fasting. It's right there in verse 33. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Now what's going on here? Now we have to remember how John's ministry was a ministry of preparation and repentance awaiting the coming of the Christ, the Redeemer. And fasting was a common practice of preparation, being mindful of our need of atonement. Indeed, where we find that fasting in the Old Testament, it's centered around the Day of Atonement. So the practice of fasting and of repentance and the necessity of atonement were all gathered together in ancient Israel. But as the need of saving grace diminished in the hearts of God's people, the necessity of works increased. So by the time the Pharisee party had come into being, they decreed that godly Jews should fast twice a week. So what is that principle that the Lord Jesus addresses here? He's going to talk about the old covenant of Moses with all that has gone before, and he's going to gather them in, into his own person, into the gospel of Christ, in a very unique way, by highlighting that he is the bridegroom, that he is the bridegroom. Let's see how he does it. First, he talks in terms of the relationships, a relational answer. First, he speaks of the necessity of his atoning death. Do you see it there in those verses? Look at what it says. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You notice how Jesus begins this obliquely in this way. It's meant to shock those who hear him. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But first notice how he says when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That is not odd. I mean, when a wedding celebration ends, what happens? Well, the guests leave, don't they? Because in ancient Israel, all the ceremony, all of this happened at the groom's house. And it goes on for a week. And there's a great party where the guests celebrate together. There's no going away on a honeymoon, as it were. But here, notice what happens. Instead of the guests leaving at the end of this week, the bridegroom is taken away. He's taken away. It's passive. He's taken away by others. So in this way, he hints already at the shadow of the cross. The fact that he has a purpose in redemption, in atonement, taking up the idea of repentance and fasting that he was asked. Now, let's see what he does with this notion of the bridegroom. What is all that about? Well, here... Jesus claims that he is the bridegroom of Israel. The bridegroom of Israel. 
you see he's gathering together a whole strand of Old Testament teaching that you find in the prophets of the Old Testament and in the Song of Songs that God himself is the bridegroom to faithless Israel, to the faithless bride. And so on the one hand, Jesus is claiming to be God himself. I am the bridegroom. Listen to Isaiah 54, verses 5 to 8, to give you a sense of what he's on about. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You see, the bridegroom of Israel is the Redeemer of the children of Israel. And so as Jesus makes this claim, he claims to be God himself with a specific purpose in mind to save those who have been faithless. And therefore, all that he's saying is shaped by God's grace and mercy. Israel didn't deserve salvation anyway, but yet he has come to seek them out and to bring them back into his household. The continual feast in the presence of Jesus is the result of this redemption. Then we find that the day will come that the bridegroom is taken away and they will fast in those days. This happens at the cross. Their sorrow gives away to the joy of the resurrection. So we find in this great image of the bride coming to the bridegroom's home now rescued and dressed and brought within the household in order to stay there for the rest of her days. And with that analogy, that image in mind, he's saying something here of those who have come to the wedding feast, who have come to share in the new life with the bridegroom. Because the bridegroom is with us. We are the bride. Indeed, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on this very same idea that the church is the bride of Christ. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, he begins there by explaining how all of us are gathered together like in a marriage, Christ and his church. He is the bridegroom of our souls. So as Jesus makes this astonishing claim, we can imagine those around him reeling from the reality of what he has just said. And so he adds here now two parables, the first in Luke's gospel, to explain again the response to Jesus' claim. In Levi, we hear of the physician and the sick versus the healthy. And here we have a similar response in the parable. Let's see what he says. 
Now, both parables focus on the unique presence of the Lord Jesus and what that presence means for your life and mine. Let's read this parable again, these two. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece of the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now what in the world are these two parables about? Well, the first one pictures a new patch of cloth sewn on an old garment. So what's Jesus' point here? Well, you must remember that cloth is woven from natural fibers in Jesus' day. And so that means when a new fabric is washed, the patch will shrink in the laundering, causing a tear both in the garment and the patch. Now the second pictures used wineskins filled with new wine. Now what's that about? Well, what we know is that in that area of Judea, it had been heavily forested, there were no standing woods left, and so wine is not fermented in wooden casks, but in goatskins. The skins of goats were stripped off as nearly whole as possible and partly tanned so that they can be filled with a new vintage. And their natural elasticity and strength would allow the fermenting new wine to expand because as wine ferments, the area inside the container is given over to carbon dioxide as the yeast eats the sugars in the wine, and the new wineskin will stretch. But an old wineskin that has dried and set will not. Therefore, a wine that ferments and expands will burst the old and brittle skins. Both wine and wineskins will be ruined. So what is Jesus' point then as we take these two together? Well, he's telling us that the new takes priority over the old, simply said. Jesus is declaring once again his office as the last Adam. He's not just another link in the chain of prophets like John the Baptist, but he is the Christ. He is the bridegroom of Israel to whom all the Old Testament scriptures point. And this wedding feast of which he is a part is never to be repeated, for it will go on forever in the joy of the Heavenly Father's presence. So the Lord Jesus cannot be woven into the structures of the sacrificial system of the temple or the priesthood. Instead, they testify to him. They must conform to Jesus. The new patch, the new wine must not be conformed to the old. And so in being conformed to him, the whole counsel of God in the Old Testament scriptures fall into place. In other words, to embrace the bridegroom of Israel is to receive the fullness of all that has gone before. Now it all makes sense. 
he tells them. The old becomes good. And that's in his final answer. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, a wine must mature before it's at its best to drink. And each grape variety has a different laying down time in the wine cellar where the wine mellows and the flavors become more complex to the palate. So to taste a wine at the start of its maturing and to taste it after it's been laid down for a number of years, people will say, yes, the old wine I prefer over the new. And so what Jesus does here is he presses his own pattern on the entire teaching of the Old Testament witness. So that when we come to the Old Testament, we no longer see what happens there as ends in themselves, but rather we see the Lord Jesus. He is the bridegroom who rescues his bride. He cleans her up, dresses her in royal robes, leads her into the joy of his heavenly Father's house. He is the Lamb of God who fulfilled all the sacrifices of the Old Testament and to which they pointed, for he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the temple. He said, you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, referring to the temple of his body. Why does he do this? Because God dwelt in him fully, fully God and fully man. He is the great high priest who has passed into the heavenly tabernacle. So Jesus is telling them, if you wish to appreciate the old rightly, then you must embrace him. That all your hopes rest on me. He's claiming that he is God that he is going to die for the sins of his people, and he is to clothe those who embrace him in the wedding garment of his righteousness and draw them into his father's house where he and his bride will enjoy joy forever. Our only hope and our only life. So can you see then how this image of the wedding feast, the new patch on the old garment, the new wine and the old wineskins kept pressing responses from those who heard him, asking them crucial questions of those who would trust in Christ. The question is not where the disciple will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or filling an old container with the new, somehow make room for Jesus in some way in the full patterns of their life or in the full patterns of how they understand their faith. Rather, Christ himself must place his stamp upon that pattern and upon that life. So the question Jesus poses to the disciples and the Pharisees around him as he makes his astonishing claim is, what will you do? What will you do? Will you join the wedding celebration? Will you join the bridegroom and enjoy his wedding gifts? For he is the center of attention, enjoying celebration, Indeed, on the cross of Calvary, only he can save us by his blood shed for us.
It is not about you or me. It is all about him. And we can see again how Luke underlines that Theophilus is to make a decision, to make a choice, to move from knowing of Christ to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear friend, I could ask you the same question today. What will you do with the bridegroom? Will you join the party? Or will you stand outside, still determined to keep your ways and your life and your faith exactly how you have fashioned it, to somehow weave Jesus in between the threads of the fabric of your life, rather than instead seeing the truth that he himself places his die stamp upon you and your life, changing it forever. I do hope you have made that choice today and have come to Christ so that you and he can enjoy one another forever and ever in our Father's presence. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.